0: Friends, in light of last week's uh, sermon text from 1 Timothy 4 on training for godliness and the uh, athletic training metaphor that Paul uses there, uh, I'm happy to report that on Thursday of this week, I did a workout at a local CrossFit gym. Now, I'm not a CrossFitter. I was a guest uh, of one of the dads on Cooper's baseball team who invited me to come work out with him. And... um, it would be an understatement, friends, to say that I felt like a duck out of water, okay? I It was like a completely foreign situation to me. Uh, first of all, the, the, the people in this CrossFit gym, the majority, are just in really, really good shape, and I obviously a- am not, and so I felt a little uneasy there. Uh, but then also, the workouts that these people do, friends, are crazy. Like, these people do, like, handstands against the wall, and I'm supposed to, like, hang and do, like, toe swings up, which, of course, I'm, like, doing these modified versions of these very complex exercises. So I just felt completely out of water. Um, I I popped a blister in my hand in a one-hour workout, which just as frankly is not right. That should not happen, Uh, but it did. Um, At the end of the session, Mike, the the brother I was with, he's a fellow believer, said something to the effect of, you know, it's amazing how many parallels there are between CrossFit and the local church. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, he said he, he t- began to tell me about CrossFit's welcoming environment toward guests and kind of the the, the non-judgmental attitude that coaches and participants have th- toward those with lower fitness levels. And I said, thank the Lord for that. And then the, the camaraderie uh, of progressing together toward a goal. Mike told me that CrossFit is really a, a very tight-knit community uh, and that, you know, as you go through these grueling workouts with the, the fellow crossfitters, they really kind of become like family. And that made sense to me, having played sports and have kind of felt that same dynamic with my teammates, that that analogy of a family made sense. Friends, a crossfit community may be kind of like a family, but the local church really is one, isn't it? We're not family by blood, we're family by faith, and the finished work's a finished work of Christ. In our salvation, not only did God forgive our sin debt, but He transferred our status, right? He He made sworn enemies His sons and daughters, united together in bonds of love through Christ. By grace, God has given us spiritual siblings and parents to love and care for and encourage. Friends, this is really the theme of the sermon text this morning in 1 Timothy 5, so please turn there. 1 Timothy 5, it's on page 992 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you don't have a Bible, please avail yourself to that one this morning. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you that Bible. So take it without guilt. Take it home and use it and read it. We would love to give you that Bible. Friends, already in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the the young Pastor Timothy, uh, the church as family has already been a prominent theme. In chapter 3, if you remember, we learned that an elder is required to manage his own household well as kind of a a test case for his ability to care for the church, which implies that the church is the family of God, doesn't it? And then Paul just explicitly says this in in chapter 3, verse 15, and what amounts to the purpose statement for 1 Timothy. Paul says that he's writing so that we might know how how to conduct ourselves, how to behave in the household household. Or the family of God. Well, well, now in chapter five, Paul is going to tease out implications of this church as family theme. He shows us a few of these ways that we live out our love for each other in the family of God, the local church. So let's read together 1 Timothy chapter five. We're going to read verses 1 to 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things uh, as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but but gossips and and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, here's the main idea of 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 16, a main idea of the text that I hope will be the main idea of the sermon. Here it is. Since the local church is the family of God, humble encouragement and discerning care should mark our life together. Since the local church is the family of God, humble encouragement and discerning care should mark our life together together. Two points from the text this morning, kind of mirroring the sections that we just read. Number one, from verses one to two, encourage your church family. Encourage your church family. Number two, care for widows in need. Encourage your church family, care for widows in need. Let's turn our attention to these first two verses of the text, encourage your church family. Friends, in these first two verses, uh, Paul reminds Timothy in the church at Ephesus that that church relationships are really family relationships. Uh, Timothy's pastoral approach toward the members of his congregation really ought to be tinged with a family-like love and care. He should not treat his church members as as if they're his underlings, right? Right? As he seeks to revitalize this unhealthy church, he, sh- he shouldn't view the, the members of the church as kind of pawns in his church health project. He, not, he ought not to interact with them as if it's his way or the highway. Rather, he ought to deal with them as he would a beloved member of his own family. Paul writes in verse 1, "'Do not rebuke an older man, "'but encourage him as you would a father, "'younger men as brothers, older women as mothers,' Younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, remember, friends, Timothy is a young man. He seems to be a relatively inexperienced pastor. Just earlier in, in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul told Timothy that, that the way that he will build credibility in his ministry as a young man, it was not to throw his weight around and insist on his own way. Rather, it was to be a Christ-like example, right, in things like speech, and love, and conduct, and purity. Now Paul is really kind of picking this idea up again. He tells Timothy that the, the, the best way, Timothy, for you to effect change and to shepherd a congregation well is not by harshness. It's not by sharp critique, but by building a relational bridge with the people in your church through the ministry of encouragement. Timothy ought to treat the church like the family they are. So with an older man in the church, Paul says, don't rebuke him, but encourage him as you would a father. Now, Paul's verbiage here assumes that there are times that an older man in the congregation needs exhortation. He needs correction in the Christian life at times. Just because a believer is aged doesn't mean that he's arrived. We know this. But when such times arise in a a pastor's ministry, the time to correct an older man, a young pastor's posture, and really an older man's posture as well, ought not to be that of a harsh critic, but of an encouraging son. Timothy ought not to haughtily try to kind of exalt himself over that older man and kind of lower that that man down the rungs of of the spiritual ladder. Rather, he ought to appeal to him by way of encouragement. Now, friends, isn't this approach what motivates people to change, after all? It's not a withering rebuke that typically provokes people toward holiness, but an encouraging word, a strengthening word that gives people courage to follow Christ with all their hearts. Encouragement rather than harshness makes clear that that the one you're trying to help, that you're actually really trying to help them, that you have their best interest at heart. Encouragement makes clear that that the the one helping isn't approaching you like a a judge at a competition, right? I'll give your recent performance in the body of Christ a a 6.5, right? You're here, but you're really not serving. You don't come that much on Sunday nights. Okay, 6.5. Hopefully one day you'll reach a 10 like me. No. No, what motivates people toward holiness is someone who's in their corner. And uses God's word to encourage them toward faithfulness. Not as their critic, but as a son or daughter or sister or mother. Friends, this ethos of humility and deference and encouragement in the family isn't just true for young pastors. Really, it should permeate the congregation. It's like a kind of like a drop of food coloring diffused in water. This, this, this color of encouragement should diffuse into the church and color all our relationships. Friends, it's so easy for young believers in the church to think that they've got it all figured out. That their way is best. That the older generation just doesn't get it, right? But what the younger generation often fails to remember is that life experience, the life experience and wisdom that that accompany gray hair is invaluable. Instead of telling the older members what they need to hear, young Christians ought to be quick to listen and slow to speak slow to rebuke. There ought to be a warmth and tenderness between the sons and daughters of the church and the dads and moms and granddads and grandmoms of the church. And Paul writes that this same family dynamic should dictate Timothy's relationships with younger men also. Just because these young men are closer to Timothy in age doesn't mean that he ought to think that he's superior to them and he can kind of talk to them in a condescending way. That just because these members lack the gray hair, it's okay to disrespect them. No, young Pastor Timothy ought to encourage men like brothers, as peers within the family unit. He ought to be eager not to lord over them, but to walk alongside them and strengthen them. And friends, it's not only the the case with the men in the church, is it? Paul says that Timothy should also develop the same encouraging posture toward the women in the congregation. He's to encourage the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Friends, just as a son ought to tenderly love and encourage his mom and sisters, so should be the approach of men to women within the family of God. That's what Paul clearly says. Friends, I think it, there's a strong implication here for pastoral ministry. It's important to note that elders in the church are to shepherd the whole flock, not just the men, right? I think Paul's words here undercut kind of like an over-realized patriarchal vibe that sometimes exists in churches, that the pastors really only deal with the men, and then it's the men who encourage their wives. I mean, there's a there's an element of truth in there somewhere, but friends, that... that approach kind of leaves single women out in the cold, doesn't it? It really does. And it doesn't square with what the Bible says about pastoral ministry. Elders oversee the spiritual good of the entire church. We shepherd the entire flock. We want to come alongside the mothers and sisters of the church and encourage them pastorally in in, in ways appropriate and, and helpful. By reminding Timothy to encourage the younger women as sisters in all purity, Paul is realistic about the temptation that sometimes accompanies relationships between men and women in the church. But notice, brothers, notice how being mindful that women are our family encourages purity and cuts the legs out from under sexual temptation. You see that? We're to remember that above all, younger women are our sisters. Those of you who have blood sisters understand this. A good brother seeks to what? Protect his sister. He watches out for her good. He would never think of exploiting the relationship for sexual purposes because she's family. Paul wants this same perspective to mark the family of God. Brothers, we ought to view women in the church through the lens of family, not the lens of sexuality, We ought not view our sisters in the church as either sexual beings for us to objectify, nor the sources of sexual temptation for us to avoid. Rather, brothers, they are our sisters in the faith for us to encourage and care for. So, church family, let me ask you, how is your ministry of encouragement going? How's your ministry of coming alongside your, your siblings and parents and the church for their spiritual good? When you gather with the church family on Sunday, do you come armed with a mindset of encouragement? Or are you here merely to consume? According to the New Testament, encouragement, friends, is one of the primary reasons the church gathers. Listen to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. That's the Sunday worship gathering, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, why must we make the Sunday morning gathering? Here I am preaching to the choir because you're here. Why must we make The Sunday morning gathering, an immovable pillar in our lives, in our weekly calendar. It's not merely to worship and receive the word. According to Hebrews, we must not set aside the weekly gathering so that we do not set aside our ministry of encouraging one another. A ministry that God has given to each one of us. You say, John, I'm I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert. Large groups suck the life out of me. Okay, I, I, I get it. Uh, not experientially, because I'm not an introvert, but I do understand what you're saying. So friends, if you're an introvert, when you come to our gatherings on Sunday, make it a goal to pick out one person. Make it a goal to pick out one person that you can encourage in the faith. One person that you can check in on or pray for or set up a meeting with later in the week, okay? That would be a great goal for you. You say, John, you don't know my schedule, man. I come into Sunday exhausted. Uh, My work schedule's crazy. My kids are up all night. You just don't understand. Oh, I do understand, actually. I'm usually up all night on Saturdays, too. It's all good. Pray for me on that. But here's the thing. If we come with this encouragement mindset, if you do that, friends, you won't be the only one expending spiritual energy if we all come with this mindset, we all are kind of actively shifted into drive, not not the reverse of a consumer mentality, but actively into the drive of moving forward toward each other in encouragement. And guess what? Even if you're tired and worn out, the chances are if we all have that mindset, you will receive encouragement on the Lord's day, not just give it. According to Hebrews, the ministry of presence on the Lord's Day, our, our presence at the, at the gathering, the ministry of presence fosters the ministry of encouragement so that we make it faithful to the end. What really happens, friends, on Sunday is that Sunday is kind of like the springboard or the launching pad for encouraging relationships within the body all week long. And this happens just in a myriad of ways, doesn't it? Through hospitality and playdates and phone calls and texts and coffee connections and home groups and Bible studies. And the list goes on. Friend, perhaps you're here this morning and you're wondering, I I just, I'm I'm not finding ways that I I can serve the church. I need to be serving. I'm not sure how. Well, friends, perhaps step one for you, if that's you. Perhaps step one isn't to start by volunteering for anything formal, but by taking seriously your opportunity to have a ministry of encouragement within the body. Maybe you're the brother or sister who takes it upon himself or herself to send encouraging thank you emails to those who sacrificially serve the body. Maybe you send the deacons who serve our church a gift card as a, as a thank, thank you for their ministry. Maybe you're the ones who are very intentional about those check-in phone calls with the brothers or sisters who you know are struggling in a trial or in some sort of struggle in the faith. Maybe it's you who are the consistent presence in the meal train sign-ups for those who need that type of help. You're the ones who invite new members over, over to your house in order to get to know them, that you have the ministry of encouragement. Some of you saw last week after the service, all of our kids in the upper elementary over in the gospel project walking up to me, handing me cards. I guess they they learned about Barnabas last week, which means the son of encouragement. And so the gospel project had them all write encouraging thank you notes to me as as the pastor and friends when i say it was a huge encouragement it was a huge encouragement maybe you saw my facebook post i mean one little guy made like this 3d pop up of me cut out with a suit on i was like i only wear a suit on on easter sunday but if there were there i was in a suit and it said you know best pastor at the bottom another little uh, gal or guy said I don't know who it was, says, thank you for helping my family get baptized. Friends, those type of things are just life-giving in ways that those kids had no idea that they were doing. It's an example of what we're talking about here. There, There are countless ways to skin this cat. Wouldn't it be wonderful for Redeeming Grace Church to be continually known as a family of faith that's creative and consistent in our ministry of encouragement? Friends, in many ways, I think that the ministry of encouraging one another toward Christ's likeness is kind of like the glue that holds a church together. It's kind of what strengthens the cords of unity within the fabric of the church so that we are knit together in love and glorify our God through His Son by His Spirit. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us be a church that excels in encouraging one another as the family that we are. Number two, Number two: not only must we encourage one another, we must care for widows in need. In verses three to 16, Paul gives special instruction about a particular subset of the church family that needs special care, the widows in the congregation. And friends, because Paul takes up this much space in his letter and this really kind of short letter to help the church know how to think about the widows in the congregation, it leads me to believe, and I think this is a, a solid hypothesis, that the church at Ephesus had a lot of widows. The life expectancy for men in the ancient world was much shorter than it is today. And so it's possible that there were, there were more widows in local churches back then in those early days than there typically are now. Here's what we know for sure. There are enough widows in the church to have some sort of formal list for care. We see that in verse 9 very clearly. And beyond that formal list, though, Paul in verses 11 to 15 lays out his concern about the behavior of young widows whose passions are drawing them away from Christ. So, so apparently this church had a substantial amount of widows, both old and young, and, and Timothy, as the pastor, needed guidance in how to think about how to best care for them as a church. Friends, the structure of this section is not neat and tidy, so let me help you see what's going on, okay? In verses 3 to 16, what Paul is doing is he's oscillating back and forth between two big principles that should govern the perspective of the church and its members. Two big principles, he just goes back and forth, okay? Principle number one, the church should tangibly care for those who are truly widows. The church should tangibly care for those who are truly widows. We see that clear as day in the headliner verse in in verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. The church is to tangibly, physically support those who are widows in this fullest sense. Okay, And we'll talk about what that fullest sense is here in a moment. Paul's going to tell us in verse 5, verses 9 and 10, and verse 16 what it means to be a true or real widow. Principle number two. Principle number two that Paul kind of oscillates back and forth between the the widow's family is the first line of care. The widow's physical blood family is the first line of care. We see this clearly in verses 8, excuse me, 4, 8, and 16 as well. And Paul presses home this point that really before the church gets involved in supporting the widows, the widow's children and grandchildren bear the first responsibility. So now that we understand what those two principles are, we can kind of see what Paul does here in the passage, right? I'm just going to walk you through it, okay? So look, look at the text with me as we go through. In verse 3, he gives this general command, honor true widows, those who are truly widows. And then in verse 4, he says, but, but the widow's family has the first responsibility. Then in verses 5 to 7, Paul gives a brief initial description of what a true widow is. And then in verse 8, Paul oscillates again to the, to the principle of the widow's family, taking responsibility for her provision and the, and the spiritual reasons that should motivate them. Then in verse 9 and 10, Paul swings back again this time to give a much more detailed description of what a real widow is that the church should support financially. And this time, those details include an age threshold of 60 years or greater. And that discussion prompts Paul's concern for temptations that often befall the younger widows, which he expresses uh, in the next several verses, verses 11 to 15. And then in verse 16, Paul stresses once again that the first responsibility for the widow's care lies with her family. So you see that he just goes back and forth between those two principles. Now, that may have been overkill, but hopefully it's clear to you now what these principles are and what, what Paul is doing in this section of text. Okay. Principle number 1, the church should care tangibly for those who are truly widows. Principle number 2, the family has the first line of responsibility. Now friends, given this structure, the way it kind of goes back and forth, instead of going verse by verse through this passage, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at three aspects of this passage. Three aspects of the passage. Number 1, instruction for the church. Number 2, instruction for the family. Number three, instruction for widows. Okay, I'm just going to look about what this passage has to say uh, in regards to the local church, how the church should think corporately about caring for widows, how the widow's family should think, and even how the widows themselves should respond to what the Lord says here. Number one, instruction for the church. Friends, it's it's very clear and evident that the local church should physically, tangibly care for a certain type of widow. Paul writes in verse 3, honor widows, Who are truly widows. It's clear that Paul isn't just instructing Timothy as an individual, but Timothy as the the kind of the representative head of the church. Timothy is to lead the church at Ephesus in honoring widows, which simply means giving them their proper due, giving them their proper recognition. Now, Paul is is not talking about just a a kind of a, a natural respect for widows or even an emotional support of widows, but honoring widows in action. He expects that local churches provide material and financial help for a certain type of widow as the expression of their love for Christ. This is part of the good works by which churches commend the gospel to a watching world. Friends, across the Roman world, as is the case in much of the world today, women whose husbands died find themselves with no means of support, especially if their their children weren't able or willing to, to help or support them. It wasn't at all common in that time for for women to earn significant income in, in the workplace. And so widowhood in the ancient world was especially vulnerable. It was an especially precarious station for a woman to find herself in. In the eyes of society, widows were nobodies. They were helpless. By virtue of their circumstances, they were dishonored but it ought not to be so among the family of God. Paul says, honor those who are truly widows. These older sisters and mothers in Christ are worthy of our highest esteem and help. Listen, when Timothy read these instructions after Paul had written them to him, when he read that letter to the church at Ephesus, I don't think they would have responded in shock or confusion like, what? really? We're to use church funds to help widows? No, friends, anyone who knows the history of God's people would know intuitively that that was the case. In the Old Testament, Yahweh, the covenant Lord, is revealed to be one whose heart is especially drawn to help the helpless. In Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 24, 26, and 27, the Lord instructed his people that they likewise ought to care for the orphan and the widow and the sojourner since he himself does. After all, God had brought Israel out of Egypt when they too were helpless. Throughout the Old Testament, care for widows is an indication of righteousness while the unrighteous disregard the vulnerable. Listen to Job 24.3. Job 24.3, evil people drive away the donkey of the fatherless and take the widow's ox for a pledge. They take advantage of the helpless. And it's upon these oppressive people that God's judgment will fall. Malachi 3.5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against, among other things, those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God's judgment will fall against those who oppress widows. All that to say this instruction to the church would have made perfect sense. It's in line with what God has called his people to do through the ages as a reflection of his love and care. Do you remember that, that first known church conflict that we discussed a few weeks ago in the Sermon on Deacons? Remember what that first initial brouhaha was about in Acts 6? It was about the care of widows. It was a dispute about how to properly care for those who had lost their husbands. And so the, what did the apostles do? They, they appointed certain men, the church appointed certain men, those kind of deacon forerunners to help solve the problem and preserve the unity in the body. The point is, friends, that from the earliest days of the church, the church has sought to care for widows. So important is a Christian's care for the vulnerable that the apostle James, that the, the brother of Jesus... Would write in James one twenty seven, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, beloved, Please don't slough this passage off as some kind of random, obscure little text with little bearing on your life practically. No, this is a really big deal. We are called by God as Christians and as the church to care for the the vulnerable among us. But even though all widows, friends, deserve our care and compassion, not all, according to the word, are worthy of the church's kind of ongoing financial support, the honor that he references in verse 3. So who are those who are truly widows? Widows in the fullest sense that are worthy of that type of ongoing help. Paul gives three qualifications. I feel like there's lots of numerical lists today. Thanks for being patient here. Paul gives three qualifications that should mark a widow as a true widow. First, there's a physical qualification that we see in verse 5. A true widow is destitute. Paul writes, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God. In other words, since the church has limited funds, it should withhold support funds from widows who have family to take care of her. The church should only provide financially for those who are truly left alone. It's the destitute who are deserving of that type of honor. The second qualification is that the widow be godly. A true widow is godly. The first description of, of what Paul has in mind is in verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and in supplications and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And then he gives kind of a fuller description of this godliness in verses 9 and 10. He discusses a more detailed set of qualifications that ought to mark those who are are enrolled on the church's financial care list. Widows who receive the church's help ought to be marked by fidelity while she was married, commitment to her family, and good works. Fidelity to her marriage, commitment to her family, and good works. Why? Why should the church just kind of not in, you know Why should the church not just indiscriminately dole out cash to all destitute widows in their congregation, irrespective of their spiritual dignity? Because Paul wants the church to make sure that, that it stewards its funds well. It would be poor stewardship to give money to the self-indulgent and the ungodly, those who would take advantage of the church's kindness with ungodly lives. It's clear here, isn't it, that such a widow exists in the world. In verse 6, Paul writes of the self-indulgent widow who wants to live high off the hog, off the support of others, right? She abuses others' kindness for her own pleasure. Paul says this type of woman is dead even while she lives. She may think that she has found the key to a, to a true life, to a, a full life in this physical world, but in reality, she's physically dead or excuse me, spiritually dead. The third qualification that, that Paul gives for widows who receive funds from the church is that they be at least 60 years old. We see that in verse 9. Why is that? Now, I, what I think is, is happening is Paul's instruction presupposes that younger women, younger women are better positioned to fend for themselves and have a higher chance of remarrying, whereas older destitute widows don't have that chance. Also, what seems to be in Paul's mind here is is really a specific situation in Ephesus in which younger widows were jeopardizing themselves spiritually. In verse 11, Paul writes that some younger widows were so beholden to their sexual passions that they walked away from Christ. I think the implication being that they were willing to marry an unbeliever and abandon their former faith. Friends, that certainly is not just a back then temptation for widows, is it? It's a very current temptation. Besides that, Paul says in verses 12 to 13, there's, there's a real temptation for younger widows while supported by others to be idle, to be gossips, thus upsetting the unity of the church. So what does Paul want for these younger widows if they can't be supported by the church? Well, verse 14 says, so I would have younger widows marry bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Paul wants these younger widows as much as they can control to get busy in the good works of being a godly wife and mother. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, John, didn't Paul recommend singleness Christians in 1 Corinthians 7? Well, yes, he did. But it was so that believers might pursue wholehearted devotion to Christ. Clearly, marriage is good, but it's not the highest good, or Paul would not have recommended singleness. However, in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, Paul writes this, Listen to this kind of parallel instruction to the widows. He says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I think Paul is pretty much saying the same thing in 1 Timothy 5 as he said in, in 1 Corinthians 7. If widows are, are tempted in ways that they cannot control, If they're they're not able to control their their sexual passions, it's better for them to pursue marriage. I I think Paul is realistic, friends, that most young Christians will indeed get married, even as he holds singleness as a very valid option and even godly option for singles to pursue. So to summarize, again, these three qualifications for widows in the fullest sense, that these widows that are eligible to receive financial support, that they be destitute, that they be godly, and that they be beyond the normal age for marriage. Now, that's a lot. It's the big summary. So what should we as a church do with that, okay? Well, a couple things. Friends, this passage reminds us that a church's money, its budget, isn't just to be used for salaries and buildings. We're going to look at that a little bit next week. Friends, it's very clear from this passage that a church's funds ought to be used to help the truly destitute among their congregation. Now, we don't currently as a church have any of our widows who are, who are financially supported by us. But if, if one of our, our, of our members met these qualifications, friends, we ought to be eager as a church to honor such a woman with our funds friends, we don't often draw attention to this, but in in addition to our general fund to which just the regular offerings of the church go, uh, the elders have set aside another designated fund called the benevolence fund to which members can give and from which the church can meet tangible needs within the body. So, friends, if you are, are eager to kind of help out in this way and you want to give above and beyond your normal kind of general fund giving, well, feel free to give a designated gift to the Benevolence Fund and help us meet these, these tangible needs. But when the time comes, friends, I pray that we would be eager to fulfill these obligations that Paul sets out here in 1 Timothy. But beyond the church's budget, The priority of a church protecting and caring for the vulnerable, friends, ought to be the the heartbeat of every single one of us. Paul wrote in Galatians, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to the family, Paul writes. Beloved, beyond this kind of formal financial help from the church, one way that we can show special care for those in our church who are widows is to be intentional and generous in our care for them. So let me encourage you. If you have a relationship with widows in our church family, listen up. And if you don't, develop a relationship with the widows in our church family. If you have a sister who's a widow in your house-to-house group, perhaps ask her, Sister, are there specific ways that that me and my family can serve you. I I know that a a number of our uh, older widows don't love driving at nighttime, so maybe you make it your special ministry to make sure that whenever one of our older widows wants to be at a church gathering in the evening, she has a ride, and she's not stuck at home because she, she doesn't like driving in the evening. Maybe Brothers who are handy, you offer your skill set as a handyman or as a fix-it-upper, right, to kind of come over to our home and fix what needs to be fixed. Perhaps you as a family invite these sisters into your home to spend time with your family. Friends, we don't only want to be known as a church who encourages, we want to be a church who takes seriously our responsibility to care for widows among us. So let's honor them just as we are called to do. This is one of the good works to which God has called us that that showcases his loving care in the gospel, that we ought to let our light shine and so ornament or beautify the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the instruction for the church. Let's now move to the instruction for the family. When it comes to the financial support of widows, friends, the church is really the second line of defense, isn't it? The first line of care is the widow's family. Paul writes in verse three, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Friends, this is not an opt-in, opt-out type of thing for Christians, is it? For Christian children and grandchildren. It's not something that we do only if it's convenient to us for our career or our home situation. No, making sure that widowed mothers and grandmothers are financially and materially provided for is part of our Christian duty. Paul says explicitly in verse 4 that this type of care is one of the ways that we tangibly demonstrate godliness, the God-honoring life through faith in Christ. Caring for widowed moms and grandmoms is pleasing in the sight of God. It elicits God's smile. Friends, it it should be an adult son or daughter's privileged obligation to do what Paul calls make some return to their parents. Friends, after all our mom has done to take care of us, right, it should be our joy to one day take care of her to make some return for carrying us in her womb and enduring the pain of childbirth and nursing us in our infancy and changing hundreds of stinky diapers and and tenderly and tenaciously investing her life in us. It should be our joy to one one day make some return to our widowed mother. This return is a key way that adult sons and daughters obey the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. You say, John, we're, we're not under the Mosaic law. Well, right, you are. But Jesus clearly upheld that commandment in his earthly ministry, didn't he? Do you remember when he rebuked the Pharisees for their self-righteous indulgence in this very area? According to Matthew 15, the Pharisees taught that you could, you could take monies that would have been set aside to take care of elderly parents and simply declare these funds Corbin or devoted to God's use. It sounds super spiritual, doesn't it? But it was, in reality, super-duper selfish. And, and, And Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees is just blistering. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Friends, it shouldn't surprise us at all that our Lord Jesus, as God incarnate, embodied God's heart for widows. Friends, according to John 19, 26, as Jesus hung on the cross, dying in agony for our sins, he saw his mother, Mary, standing next to what John says that the disciple whom he loves, talking about himself, Mary was standing next to his disciple, John, and Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he looked at John and he said, behold your mother. John writes in verse 27 of his his own response to Jesus Christ, and from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Beloved, even as Jesus bled and died for our unrighteousness, he fulfilled all righteousness by ensuring the care of his widowed mother. Friends, no wonder Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Failing to provide for needy relatives is to fail in the basics of following Christ. It indicates that we don't know or love him. Friends, if you refuse, just refuse to provide for your needy relatives, it doesn't matter what you say with your lips. Your life indicates that your faith is dead. Friends, it's even common, Paul says, for unbelievers by natural law and common grace to understand this obligation to their parents. So if you refuse to take care of your widowed mother, you're worse off, Paul writes, than a pagan. Brothers and sisters, we can thank God and utilize government programs or retirement benefits that that provide aid to the elderly. Uh, Your aging parents may be cared for through Medicare or a retirement fund, or pension. But at the end of the day, friends, it is not the job of the state or the stock market to ensure that your widowed mother is taken care of. It is your job as a Christian son or daughter. Part of the basic expression of our faith in Jesus is the honoring of our parents in ways appropriate to each life stage. So friends, if you're a young adult, let me just encourage you, kind of a special word for you, set your sails as much as you can toward financial independence from your parents, not just for your kind of like common good in this world. I'm sure that, that many of us, as we've grown into adulthood, we've continued to benefit from generous parents. I know that that I have for sure, and it is a blessing. But as But God enabling us, we want to cultivate a financially independent mindset to increasingly prepare us for that day when we we may have responsibility for our parents, not the other way around. We want to position ourselves to be fully able and willing to care for widows and orphans and the elderly as God gives us that responsibility all of us ought to feel this holy burden in our spiritual bones. One of the ways that we commend the gospel to a watching world and demonstrate the love of Christ is a willingness to ensure that our widowed mom or grandma is taken care of. Number three, we've seen this instruction for the church, for the family, and now let me just give a word to widows. If you're here this morning and you are a widow, let me just ensure you that we love you and God loves you. Given all this data about your care from both your blood family and your faith family, let's just, just get it on the table. Be assured that it is our joy to serve you, sister. You may feel like a burden at times, but you are not. You are a blessing. It's a blessing to serve you. When the church or a family member helps you, we're, what we're doing is reflecting our God. Friends, the essence of the gospel is that God in Christ helps the helpless. He rescues the spiritually destitute. He provides us a salvation when we could have never provided that for ourselves. In a million years, he provides it fully and freely through the work of his son. It's through Jesus' perfect life, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection, that we are saved and helped eternally. So all we're doing when we help widows who are destitute is we are reflecting the love of our God and the gospel of Christ. So sister, it is a delight to do for you physically what our God has done for us all spiritually. Widowed sister, look at Paul's word about your life in verse five. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God. And continues in supplication and prayers night and day. You may be all alone physically. Even if both your husband and your family is gone or absent. But Paul's point is that you're not truly alone. You can with confidence put your hope in the one who calls himself the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. He is the one, as Proverbs 15, 25 says, Tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Our God cares for all of his children, but his heart is especially bent, and his eyes of mercy steady upon the widow. Sister, think of this. It was to a Gentile widow that our God chose to make himself known in the days of famine during Elijah's ministry. The widow of Zarephath's jar of flour and jug of oil never ran dry. Her son, though he died, was raised back to life. Our God will likewise be merciful to you. Sister, the God of Ruth and Naomi is your God. And just as he was faithful to them, so he will be to you. Just as faithful widowed Anna experienced the fulfillment of God's promise when Jesus was presented at the temple by his parents, so our God will fulfill his promise to you, sister. In his earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son back to life. And in order to encourage boldness in prayer, he told a story about a a needy widow who was heard finally by her persistence of knocking on the door of the unjust judge. In other words, you can have full confidence, sister, that when you put your hope in God, he will not let you down. If in times of loneliness and need, you continue in prayers and supplications night and day, you will be heard. Because you pray to the God who loves and cares for widows. He is committed to providing for you, even as He has given you a faith family and for some of you, blood relatives to provide for you in this life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for just the immense practicality of your word. This kind of detailed instruction for widows reflects your heart of love for your people, and especially for the vulnerable and helpless. Oh God, we thank you that you're that type of God for all of us. You've you've rescued all of us who are here today as worshipers of of you through Christ. You have done this for all of us in rescuing us from our sin when we could not help ourselves. And yet we praise you that your heart and your, your love is dispensed toward the vulnerable among us. So help us to be a church who reflects that love, Father. I pray that we would be a church who encourages one another in Christ as verses 1 and 2 showed us how to do, but even as verses 3 to 16 kind of gives us this, this, this detailed instruction for the church. Oh, Father, help us to be a church who takes very seriously and joyfully as both the church and individual family members, our responsibility to care for those, those moms and grandmoms in need. Oh, Father, help us to shine the light of Christ brightly, not just through what we say, but through lives that shine your light into this world.